Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and today we're crossing over to Oxford in the United Kingdom and catching up with Ben Nichols. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Ben. Uh, good morning, Marcus. Really good to join you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, looking forward to our conversation here. Uh, should be interesting. And, and let me just frame this a bit. What, a, what we'd be talking about, and of course, a bit about who you are and your career. So, Ben is best known for his uh, couple of last decades in the marketing communication or sports communication and PR side of our industry, uh, having worked with various illustrious groups, which you'll hear about later, including WADA, the uh, World Anti-Doping Organization, and, and that by itself should be already an interesting topic, uh, talking about communication with them. And I'm, I know Ben will be able to share some interesting stories of uh, during his period of time there. But also, you know, how it led to it, uh, what Ben was doing before he got there. And of course, what he's doing now. And that is, uh, he's launched a new uh, marketing or, or communication agency consultancy for the world of paddle, paddle the, or the sports of paddle. And uh, again, we're going to dive into what is paddle. We're going to talk a bit about pickleball as well, which is sort of the somewhat equivalent American version, uh, which has taken the, the, the American market by storm, similar to paddle, uh, the extremely fast growth going on in the, I guess, across Europe and other parts of the world. So it should be really interesting uh, to cover all these topics and on uh, a process, of course, learning again, a whole new side of the business and hopefully a little bit about this new exciting record sport, which, uh, as I said, has taken the world by storm. So let's dive right in there, Ben, and tell us a bit how you got into the industry. What I know, of course, is you, uh, while you were studying, um, you were doing internships and volunteer, you know, it's my volunteering, say, but, uh, you know, doing different jobs around the world, um, already in the world of PR and communication, etc. But uh, share a bit of that. Uh, it's a really interesting way of how to get into this, get the industry started here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I uh, I grew up uh, absolutely sports mad, as a, a lot of people in our industry do, of course. Now yes. I grew up playing a lot of tennis, a lot of squash, a lot of big racket sports in the UK, uh, and team sports. And I I pretty early on decided I wanted to work in sport, um, which I think even then was maybe quite bold and a lot of people still thought you know back then that you know you went to traditional careers and uh, and sport wasn't really a, a business to get involved in but it was growing and it's much bigger now and i realized i wanted to be in sport i realized i loved words as well so i loved writing i loved sports commentary i loved kind of absorbing the sports media industry i suppose mm. so i went through various um you know, phases of like, I want to be a sports commentator, I want to be a sports writer, and it, it evolved into, okay, I think I want to be a sports journalist. Um, and and that was kind of into my late teens, I, I was fortunate to have a sister, um, Emily, who's who's had a fantastic career in, in the tennis world and other sports. Right. And she started introducing me um, as, um, as a great sister does to um, various kind of sports press offices as she was working in that world who were looking for students and young people to come in and, and learn at the entry level. So uh, I was fortunate to go and my year out after school and uh, work at the Australian Open Tennis, which interestingly, I did the back off, uh, off the back of um, being a backpacker where I was one week, I was 
fruit picking in rural Victoria, Australia. And the next week I was working in the Aussie Open Press office with lots uh, <laughs> of press commitments and dealing with interviews for your Agassiz, your Federer's, et cetera. So it was a oh, real um, that's cool. contrast, but that, that was fun. And, uh, you know, similarly, when I was at finishing, I remember my first, I vividly remember my last, what we call in, in England, A-level exam, which is your, your final um, lot of exams before you finish school. And I went straight from that last exam uh, which was a couple of days into the Wimbledon fortnight and uh, started my Wimbledon career, I suppose you'd call it, working in the press office for two weeks. Um, so I went, you know, straight from finishing school to starting, uh, yeah, working in the press office, helping as a press assistant, which involved helping journalists, uh, organizing the interviews, putting up information, just being a liaison for them to allow allow them to do their job properly. Um, and I did that more and more in tennis press offices. I did it with the British Formula One Grand Prix. And I just thought this is an environment I absolutely love. Uh, whether I want to be a journalist or I want to work on more the PR sport event side, that was still an open question in my head. But it was clear that I got a buzz out of working at these, you know, amazing events where which were a hive of activity. Yeah, I can see that. And uh, many of us had similar ways to get in there. Um, you know, and obviously you made a, you definitely made a career out of uh, your love for the sport and, and the writing part, as you said, the PR and communication side of it. So um, let, let's chat a bit about, you know, the sort of the next stops here in your career, um, you know, because you, you, you didn't just stay in the UK. Obviously, you went, uh, you went to Dubai and you had some interesting roles there uh, and you worked across, you know, different, different groups here in Formula One, et cetera. Let's talk a bit about it um, to just, you know, add some more stories to it. Absolutely. So I, after university where I did a media communications degree, I, um, I managed to secure an internship with the ATP uh, tennis, men's tennis governing body, of mm -hmm. course, at their headquarters in Florida. So I did three months there and that was a great, great, I guess, thing to have on the, on the resume and it was a great step into the sports world yeah. uh, and then I moved back to, to home and that was London and I spent a couple of years in London you know cutting my teeth as we say uh, on sports PR so I worked on the agency side of things so working with multiple clients as an account executive really um, you know rolling up my sleeves and getting on with all the, the non-glamorous tasks and learning the industry of how to promote clients get them press coverage um, manage uh, media events, all of those sort of tasks that go yep. within the sports PR bucket. And I did that for a couple of years and uh, I did it alongside in parallel for a while. I did some freelance sub editing um, to keep that journalism fire alive, I guess, with the, the Times and Sunday Times newspapers. Okay. And then I got to a stage where I was self-employed and, and this was just around 2008, summer 2008. And uh, so that you know the financial crash was on the way and um it was work was hard to come by in sport in the uk and i i took a decision i'd been looking around for, for a new project my uh my sister my other sister i have two sisters and a brother who was living in the uae at the time um had said look you know whilst it's a tough economic environment in the uk and much of the world um you know dubai is currently it wasn't later but currently thriving and there's lots mm. of opportunity there's lots of need for for expats for brits to come over and use their talent in this pretty new market for sport right. and so i thought right worst comes to worst i go out to dubai i book a two-month um two-month flight um a ticket and um you know worst comes to worst See i have a good happens. holiday <laughs> and, uh, and and the better option is maybe i get some job offers and i went out and i had somewhere to stay 
And it's amazing just what, you know, doing something bold at the time can and taking a bit of a risk, and it felt like a risk to me, can do. Um, because, you know, within a week I had three different job offers and I had an opportunity to join a company called Promo 7 Sport. Right. And that's I spent, uh, yeah, almost two years of my life and had a fantastic experience. That was very much a first milestone for me in terms of um, when I look back on my career. And that was, I had a couple of hats I wore in that role. Uh, one was as head of press for the Dubai Tennis Championships, which was the ATP and WTA event, uh, mm-hmm. award-winning top players in the world, your, yeah. your Venus Williams your Sharapovas, your Federers, you name it. And uh, then the other hat was working on the Emirates Airline uh, Dubai Rugby Sevens, which um, to anyone that's been that part of the world um, knows is a huge, huge deal. A very, very big festival of rugby uh, entertainment. And it was Emirates Airline who now sponsored lots of sports. Um, It was their signature um, event. So that was a fantastic opportunity. And if I'm honest, you know, I was in my early 20s. That was those were opportunities I wouldn't have got till much further down the line in a in a more established market like the UK or Germany or America. Um, but in Dubai, sport was sport business was in its early days, and um, and they were prepared to you know take on younger people who wanna who wanna learn and grow and learn on the job. And that was I was one of them. Yep. So yeah, I, I actually remember that time. I think it was literally around the time when he, we had an office in Dubai too um, for for about a year. Reasonably short lived, uh, but similar like what you just said. Uh, the market was hot. Uh, it was very clear. There are opportunities, and we we put our toes in the water too. Uh, didn't really work out as we wanted to, and so we we pulled the plug fast uh, before it got too painful. But uh, yeah, Dubai obviously, if if you were on the ground, like you were. During that time, it it was very vibrant, um, and clearly the rest uh, of the world maybe was hurting, uh, as you said. Um, now, yeah, yeah. So now, but part of that, uh, I, I remember from our conversation before, um, sort of then from Dubai, it, it led into the next one, which was what was the Lotus Renault F1? Is that correct? That's right. So I, I spent a couple of years there, and I, you know, from a career point of view, I could have spent many more years, and I think got m- many more opportunities, but. I wanted to use that, you know, two years of quick learning experience and take it back to the UK, which is more competitive, um, you know, harder to make your mark. And, I, and that's that's where home was. So I moved back and that was uh, around 2010, 2011. And yeah, I got a I got a role as senior press officer for the Formula One team, Lotus Renault GP, which is a yeah, famous team from near Oxford in England. And it's had many different names, been rebranded many times. Yes. Uh, what is it? Which team is it now? <laughs> well, that's a very good question. It's been the most recent has been Alpine, um, Alpine. and it's had, it's had Benetton before, um, you know, and it's had some really good drivers. Um, and uh, and at the time, we were sort of mid-ranking, uh, mid-ranking in the in the pits, and we um, so we had Nick Heidfeld, obviously a well-known, experienced driver. We had Vitaly Petrov, who I think was the first Russian in Formula One, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Uh, we had Roman Grosjean, of course, well-known, and right. uh, and you know um, survived a very serious um, accident um, a, f- a few years ago. And we had Bruno Senna, and you'll know from the surname who that sure. is. Uh, that's Absolutely, nephew, nephew of the late great Ayrton. So great drivers to work with. We had some great sponsors, and it was a role where I was traveling around all the the races, which was fun, glamorous, exhausting, <laughs> all at the yeah. same time. And yeah, managing the driver PR, so their schedules around their race commitments. It was working with the engineers and the team principals to 
take what is essentially a really technical um, subject uh, and trying, you know, trying to communicate it to the the outside world and communicate the, you know, the virtues and the excitement surrounding Formula One. Um, and then it was working with sponsors to tell their stories to explain why they were investing in a Formula One team. Um, so I did that, uh, did that for some time then, and that was got me into motorsport. And that led on to another role, uh, which was working for a, a communications agency in motorsport as well. And that was, again, agency side, that was working with brands who were sponsoring in, in the sport. So Tag Heuer, uh, Credit Suisse, um, Goodwood Festival of Speed, which is a big uh, event here in the UK. So I spent a couple of years in motorsport as a non-petrol head. And I, I, you know, why did I do that? Because Formula One certainly is exciting, but two, I think, um, it's, you know, I love a challenge and love to, um, you know, come from the outside and get to know and a, a different sport, get to know the culture and, and try and bring fresh perspectives as well. So I think right. that can be a win-win scenario. Well, traveling around the world, I'm assuming you had to go probably to quite a few of the events, um, at that age is, is kind of, kind of fun too, right? Um, as hard work as it is, uh, I'm sure that's yeah. a great experience in itself, right? Yeah, yeah, no, certainly no sympathy when I used to come back and say I'm exhausted and <laughs> people saying, wow, what a job you've got there. You know, there's not many who, who can have the opportunity to do that. And that's right. What a great opportunity it was. Yes, it was tiring. It's still a job. It's still, uh, you're still working flat out. You've still got to prove yourself. You know, there's, you've still got the dynamics of working with different people, all those challenges that we face in day to day. Uh, but yeah, was it a great opportunity? Yes. Was it good to travel at that age? Of course it was. Um, and to be part of a sport like that, which is, I think to me at the time as a non-Formula One fan, but seeing it, it's, you know, it's a surreal sport in so many ways. It's, it's fast paced. It's exciting. It's very international. There's a lot of money involved. Um, and it's just a great thing to be a part of. And right, I think absolutely. even more so today, it's, it's how, changed and it's done very well. How do you make, how do you differentiate yourself, right? In terms of when, you know, working for one particular team, you know, there are 10 others out there all competing and clearly the big boys always get a certain, you know, automatic mileage just because of who they are and or winning races. Uh, was of course. of course for Lotus Renault you know, at that time wasn't necessarily the case. Um, as you said, being a sort of more of a mid-table team, you know, what what is it from a PR point of view? What you guys can do to stand out yeah. to create that noise? I mean, maybe you have an example of something. Well, it's a very good question, and I grappled with that at the time, and I think probably people in in the press office roles at Formula One teams still do. Um, it's because you, what you want to do is create that identity and brand that's completely distinctive from whoever's in the, in the neighboring garage on the pit lane, right? So, right. For, you know, there's the obvious ones. Ferrari have a clear identity. Um, you know, the, the Italian Azuri Red. Um, and, uh, and and they've got that fan base and that clear brand worldwide. Everyone knows Ferrari. Um, you know, these days you've got, um, of course, you've got Red Bull and they've got a real, um, you know, a, a sort of maverick startup um, you know, slight kind of rebel image, even though they've been around for years and are in many ways an establishment team, they've kept that image very well. And I think they've done that perhaps through their the stunts, the PR stunts they do, the, the extreme right. sports they invest in. They've created that brand very cleverly. Um, and then you've got, you know, Lotus Renault. And because it, it's a, it was a challenge because you've been through different team names uh, and it's constantly evolving. This was at a time when it was Anglo-French. So it was a bit of a, a hybrid in terms of its its um, origin. Right. Um, it's, it's difficult. How do you use what you have and create a very clear 
brand around Lotus Renault. Um, you know, I mean, I think we used to do things like we didn't have the same um, maybe kind of corporateness, for want of a better word, as some of the teams. So we used to, um, you know, use that opportunity to be, I think, try and present ourselves in a bit more of a lighthearted, a bit more of a kind of um, independent sort of non-corporate way and just the way we talked about things on press releases, the way we tried to use some humor in our video content, um, and just to, I guess, be a bit more of a, a sort of laid back, less corporate machine than um, than perhaps the McLarens and the other um, te established teams were. Uh, whether that resonated, uh, I don't know, it's difficult to say, but we very much tried to focus on that because we needed something that made us a clear, yes, you know, put clear, clear water between us and the next door team. But it's Formula One, I think, is it, that is a challenge because it's you're dealing with technology cars, you're dealing with you know who's investing the most money um and it's it's quite difficult to show that kind of human approach um that that you know because you're dealing with machinery yeah right and i mean if you're in the front row there, there's always an easy story right there um but if you're in the middle or even in the back of it um that's a bit harder then right um why are you different than the guy next to you and you know and grid row number or whatever six seven eight nine ten right um yeah. so yeah, no, interesting but uh yeah let let's keep moving along here because uh the next stop which uh i want to talk about i think is as interesting as anything we'll probably be able to talk about here today and that is your four years with wada the world anti-doping association and uh you know, and again, you moved around the world. Um, you moved to Montreal, Canada, which is where the agency is uh, based. And uh, and you know, that's that's uh, first of all, I don't know whether you came straight out of F one into there or there was some uh, other things in before. But uh, uh, you know, how do you get there? How do you get to Wada? <laughs> what was the interesting part there for you as a uh, you know marketing or communications PR man? I still scratch my head if I'm honest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, the interesting story was I uh, I was looking for a new role and um, for a while, and I um, want, didn't want to work in motorsport for for the rest of my career. And it wasn't, you know, it was in many ways great for me, but it wasn't my passion. Um, I wasn't a, a petrol head like some are, and. I was looking for something new and I wasn't looking to move overseas. I'd met my um, my now wife and very settled in London and bought a house. And essentially, I, I was headhunted for a role, which was um, a media relations role at WADA. Uh, went through the process and uh, I certainly thought at the time I went through it, I thought, you know, this is an ambitious one. I'm perhaps, you know, not experienced enough yet to get it, but let's let's try anyway. And I did, I went through the process and I, I got very close. I think I got to the final two or three, uh, but didn't get the role. And then interestingly, I just sort of occasionally say, and this is, I think, a message for, for anyone in their careers to, you know, keep in touch with people that you've you, you connected with, you built a relationship with, because you never, it's a small industry in many ways. You never know how yep. you're going to work together in the future. So I, you know, occasionally would touch base with them and just let them know what I'm doing and, you know, express my interest should any, should they be expanding or, or even, you know, opening a, an office in London, which would be an ideal fit for me. Um, and then, you know, we're talking um, probably a year or two later, um, you know, I did um, get in contact with them and there was an opportunity and it was um, the opportunity I'd hoped for before had come along again, and um, and essentially they, you know, they'd interviewed me before, and it was a much 
quicker process than the previous one. And they offered an opportunity for me, you know, a second bite of the cherry, as it were, to come out and join in, in Montreal's um, heading up their media relations team. Right. Uh, so it's funny how things transpire, really. And uh, I, yeah, I remember that period well. Like I said, I just bought a house. It's the last thing in my mind. But my wife and I um, thought, uh, look, you can't choose the timing of these things. Unfortunately, life just doesn't work like that. So whilst we could, you know, put put this opportunity at the perfect time for us, that wasn't then. But we thought, let's let's go for it. We'll rent out our place. We'll take this opportunity. Go yeah, to live in an amazing there. city. Montreal and uh, and let's embrace this with all hands and if if it doesn't work out for some reason you know we've tried it and that's another kind of mentality I've always had is um, not not to make try and make reckless decisions but if in doubt and you think this isn't going to come along you know what's the worst that could happen try and if it doesn't work out at least you've experienced something different and you've probably grown as a person so that was the mentality going into it Uh, so I, I I took on that role in Moved uh, to let's let's talk about what you know during that era. Uh, or when I say era during during those uh, four years you were there. Um, you know the Wada got himself into a couple of uh, interesting uh, uh, scenarios here. Run you know, uh, and we you mentioned earlier, you know when we spoke last time from Lance Armstrong to of course IWF um, to the Russian scandals, uh, which kind of comes comes out of it. So share us you know being exactly on the front line there in a sense on as a media and communications manager there um you know having to communicate wada's message trying to um i guess make sure that it is a communicated in the right way um and not misinterpreted of what wada is doing at the same time you know you you're always going to be struggling to be seen as the good guy in some scenarios right because people will always point fingers that something has gone wrong or what is having has other whatever alternative reasons uh, to go after the russians or others um for that matter so let's let's pick you know maybe start with lance i mean obviously that was a huge story most of us will remember it uh like i said you are inside of it uh, tell us a bit about it let's start there so I arrived uh, just at the tail end, just after uh, the report, the U.S. anti-doping report into U.S. Postal, uh, of course, of which Lance was, uh, you know, a central part, came out. So that will um, come out and the repercussions were, were, were then being, they were then happening, let's put it that way. So I arrived at one shortly after, um, in fact, the Armstrong Oprah Winfrey interview. Right. Um, so I wasn't personally involved in the 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 wider side of things then but what did happen when i took on that wider role and i was reading up and as much as i could from anti-doping naturally everything i was reading was to do with cycling or cyclists who'd been caught doping or or sanctioned in some way so cycling was very much the sport where doping happened that was the feeling back in 2013 and there was a public wrestling going on between WADA and the International Cycling Federation. So there's a lot of politics going on. And that was seen as the problem sport. Now, I came at um, I came to WADA, obviously, from, as you've heard, from kind of much more of a sport background, working with athletes, brands. And this was this was a bit of a, a jump. This was into the governance and the policy side of sport, um, a bit more the decision making side of sport rather than the being at those events directly um, myself. So it was, right. it was a much more serious, complicated, uh, technical type of role. 
And so, yes, started with, it was heading up media relations. So in terms of the responsibilities, it was answering the press inquiries. It was putting out WADA's position publicly, uh, handling press conferences, um, trying to promote WADA on the front foot of what it was doing and its mission for doping-free sport. And that was tough when we were firefighting a lot, um, mm. looking after social media, you name it. It was an all-encompassing role. And um, we moved on from the cycling. And I, I remember when I arrived thinking, God, this is, you know, this is, to the outside world, this is sort of juicy stuff. This is really serious doping issues. Um, and and lo and behold, I couldn't believe it, you know, it evolved. It got more and more complicated. You know, the cycling issues drifted a little bit and and cycling did improve its anti-doping program. So that became less less of a problem for WADA and the focus then moved on to athletics was the the next wave. And, and right. often these waves came in to, you know, to our department, the communications department, because it was often based on media allegations or media stories. And that's where that would, you know, kick us into um, needing to give a public response on things. So right. yeah, athletics was the next big issue sport. And that was really around stories of, um, well, some of which related to us, some didn't. So the not the sort of the side that came out was um, around corruption allegations at the what was then the IAAF, um, right. and whether there was extortion and and um, yeah wrongdoing going on in terms of hiding doping cases etc and that then linked into okay there's russian athletes involved and that's what really kind of instigated wada to have a um a big investigation into russian athletics right. uh, which was called the the pound report which was headed up by former wada president and former ioc um uh, uh ioc um person which is called dick who's called dick pound who's a yes. big canadian figure he's had some, right. some amazing roles um but he was very very involved in the anti-doping world and um yeah so the report was into russian doping um in athletics it was i remember from an experience point of view i remember going over to geneva for this we we finished the the investigation um or the independent commission had finished the investigation going over to geneva to moderate the press conference and allow dick and his team to deliver it to the world as it were and it was it dawned on me there just how much of a big international issue this was when you saw you know the bbc news and all the the main broadcasters covering this as their not their sports headline but their main headline because it related to systematic state doping in russia so that is a, a very serious issue and that, um, you know, that put WADA much more in the in the crosshairs and the headlights than than it had previously. I think a lot of people knew WADA, but certainly after the Russian issue, they'd heard a lot more of WADA um, and what what its remit was. Um, although it's st still often a little misunderstood um, in terms of the the ability WADA has to and the powers it has to um, yeah, on these issues. But it was a uh, yeah, fascinating time. And then that. Let, let, let's that, uh, go in there that, for a minute here, um, which is at the end of the day, it is an independent body, right? If I if I'm correct there, right? So yeah, so, so Wada, yeah, so Wada was set up late end of the '90s, uh, early 2000s. There was a big declaration, um, which was essentially the governments, and this was where Dick Pound was heavily involved, as bringing the governments uh, on, on one side, and then the um, the sports movement, so the IOC and the sports federations on the other side, around the table together. To, to form an international, um, you know, non-governmental body to tackle doping in sport. And that was off the back of something called the Festina scandal, which was the big original sort of Tour de France uh, doping scandal in 1998. Okay. Um, so 
Dick, 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 and the and and the and the the powers that be then essentially said, okay, if, the, if we're going to have a global body, we can't have government and sport arguing with each other. We need an independent body that essentially is represented on its board, half by government, half by sport, and that's the only way we can, you know, have consensus on how to address this really serious issue. Makes sense. Now, the part that gets interesting is how is WADA funded? Yeah, and the funding would come from half from the sports movement, in other words, the International Olympic Committee, right. and half from the governments of the world. So, you know, depending on the size of the nation, GDP, etc., they different governments, different countries would contribute different amounts according to their their size. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I think that probably the biggest contributor was um, was the US. I don't know if that's still the case, but certain countries would pay a lot more into WADA's coffers than other countries. Um, and the aim there was, yeah, essentially everyone's invested in doping-free sport in that way. Um, now, yeah, of course, the questions would come later down the line and really percolated when the, the Russian doping scandal got to its, its worst extent and we had the McLaren report come out at WADA. There were questions over, um, yeah, independence and the influence of the sports movement on WADA. And I think they really came, those questions came from those who saw um, sports role within WADA as a slight conflict because essentially the the sports movement's main main um ambition is to promote sport to promote the good side of sport to get people you know commercially invested to get people interested to get participation up yet on the on the other side you've got doping scandals which do nothing to support that they 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 tarnish sport so whilst doping is absolutely you know a paramount issue to to tackle are the sports movement you know conflicted in terms of promoting and policing sport and i think right. that's where the big controversies came from particularly from the national anti-doping organizations and the government side who wondered is that a conflict and and you know are, are they going to be able to make impartial decisions um when it comes to big right. major issues like russia and russian bans correct yeah because they, some of the money comes from them right uh and that, that was sort of when we were talking last time as well it was sort of the first thing popped in my mind when you when you mentioned that that it's you know there is an obvious or there could be seen as a conflict of interest there um in some in so many ways and especially when it comes to these high profile things now that let's uh, bring us back to, to these sort of times when you were there in this organization and uh, you know, IWF, Russia, all these things are happening as we speak. You know, how are these communications formed? Right? Is it you guys have a little war room? You guys huddling together, and you know, it's sort of uh, a discussion over how the message will be formed, or is it sure. the head of WADA says this is the message? You just type it up, and you know, and I'll and I'll deliver it. I mean, how how does it work in the company or in the organization or in the agency? Yeah, so my experience was I, I again, I wasn't an expert in anti-doping by any means. So my role, I saw it in the early months, was to, to you know, to absorb as much as possible about the organisation and understand these pretty complex issues. And to do that, I needed to spend time in each of the departments with the head of legal, with the head of science, with the head of medical, uh, with the director general, all these different, with the head of education, all these different areas that WADA was operating in. And when questions, particularly when questions were coming from media, I was under no illusions. I can't, you know, respond without having the information, the up-to-date information from the relevant water department. So I'd make sure I'm speaking to 
um, the right people from the right department to get the factual information on the status of a case, for example. Um, and then, you know, there, there was a process in place. So if there was a pending doping case a, a journalist had, had caught sight of, you know, very much our response would typically be, you know, this is a pending case. We can't comment until it's concluded Could that because that could be, you know, uh, that could prejudice the the end result, whether they're guilty or innocent, as it were. So right. I bet there was a process in place for how we do of existing cases. Um, and then other matters, yeah, it would be a case of getting the right information, getting the facts, um, and certainly uh, working with the leadership, the director general and others to um, make sure we provide a response, which is A, factually a accurate, uh, B, doesn't prejudice any ongoing legal actions taking place, um, and C, is also explained in the best possible way to to the layman, to the outside, to the journalist who's reporting to the public. And that that kind of balance was quite tricky because, again, it's complex issues, often legal jargon, but at the same time, you know, it's you or me as a sports fan in the street that wants to understand these things in a non-legal way. So trying to balance those two almost competing interests was was tricky, uh, but something I became, you know, better at. And I, I used my time there as well to make sure if the director general, the chairman or um, or one of the directors wasn't able to do interviews or wasn't comfortable doing interviews, I would I would work as a spokesperson as well. So I would do. Right. I was just going to ask that. So you are actually uh, communicating on behalf of water at that time. Yeah, co correct. So not just written, but I do TV stuff as well, because um, because of the volume we got, it wasn't always possible or, or the director wasn't always available to, to do it. So we would um, we would share that in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but I think. As the issues got bigger and as we we're dealing with the, the, the mega issues like uh, like Russian doping and like the Pound report and then the McLaren report, yes, would would we have war rooms? Absolutely. You know, get all the, the talents of the organization around the table and look at it from different perspectives. So what's the legal perspective? What's the public interest perspective? Um, you know, what's the science perspective? What's all these different perspectives to decide how and when we respond to something. Mm. Uh, and it's not just responding to the media, you know, what's easily forgotten is you've got to, you've got to respond, respond to your staff as well. If they read things through the, the press before, as you imagine, that's not, that's not great for staff morale. They want to know internally they're being talked to. Um, and then you've got your board members as well. So there's a, there's a, a you know, a different kind of, um, there's a process of different um, communications you've got to carry out whilst you're um, managing these issues. Um, and it's very easy just to think, right, get back to the journalist. But actually, what about all those partners you work with who need to be kept on side? Yeah, interesting. Uh, I mean, like I said, it's, it's definitely, I'm sure, a very unique place to be. Uh, and especially mm -hmm. during those times, uh, obviously, it led it in eventually to the Russians being, uh, Russian uh, Federation or the Russian athletes you know, partially being banned again for Tokyo and, and other things on the back of it. So uh, we could probably spend the whole podcast on it, but that's not the point here. So uh, I will yeah. keep moving on uh, along the line, along here. Um, and I know you, you had a bit of an interesting uh, role then coming right out, uh, going back to the UK or even Monaco, I guess, for a period of time there with the Athletics Integrity Unit, which then was headed by Seb Cole, which obviously had something to do with, with your experience there at WADA, right? Maybe just uh, share a quick one on that one. Yeah, so in 2017, I decided after four four really fantastic years to move back to the UK. And, uh, and you know, the first opportunity I got, and I'm, you know, forever grateful for, for, for that, was with 
my former boss, actually, David Howman, who was the director general of WADA, and he moved on to become chair of the Athletics Integrity Unit, which mm. was, as you say, set up by SEBCO to deal with um, those issues like doping and corruption and integrity-based issues that essentially emanated from what I talked about earlier, that um, the the issues the IAAF had several years previous. So in a way, that was I saw that as interesting because the Athletics Integrity Unit was quite pioneering um, in terms of taking, you know, taking an in, creating an independent body to tackle these issues um, and learn from previous mistakes. And uh, I saw that as an interesting project. I took it on on a short-term basis, a six-month basis, to um, as a director of communications to you know to set up their website to help them communicate to the media. It was the World Championships in London that summer, so to make yeah. sure David Again, and the was that the, similar here? Yeah. IWF was the one who funded it, um, or who, where? How was the how was the unit put together? Yeah, so my understanding is the fund. That's where the funding came from, and but it was very much set up with um, yeah, remit and statutes for it to be independent. So right. a, a completely different team, proper reporting structures, um, no influence from within the governing body. So it's very much, again, a result of the pro problems that the federation had had years previous. Yeah. Um, to say, okay, we think there's a way of doing this that's going to instill trust that the athletes will believe in, that doesn't repeat mistakes of the past. And you know, gives us and our sport credibility. And and to be honest, hats off to athletics to turning that whole um, you know ship around and making it um, a sport that you know, if you speak to journalists now, whilst it's not perfect, it's got a lot better on tackling doping issues. And and that body, the Athletics Integrity Unit, is one of the leading bodies worldwide. So so what a turnaround story. Um, and it was fun to be part of that for the first six months and to help establish their structures and uh, and get them known to the media and get their role known to the media as well, um, mm -hmm. because it was a new way of tackling um, doping and corruption issues that, that people hadn't been used to seeing. No, no, great. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what I was interesting that we're highlighting as well to show that how sport is reacting, right? Um, uh, you know, a lot of these things, you only hear the big headline news when it happens, right? Um, as in the, the drama, that's what the press obviously focus on, that then afterwards, um, these, these type of integrity units or other things getting put into place across many of these organizations, right? IOC has things like that. FIFA has now, you know, different units, you know, in, in focused on certain areas. Um, that then never gets really reported, right? Uh, so I think that's a, it's good to highlight that, that uh, IWF again took the step and moved forward uh, into that space as well. Yeah. Now, like you said, it was a and short one. Sorry, could, yeah, sorry, keep, keep going. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, you're right. Those, those things don't get reported. Because, you know, they can be dry, not really stories, as it were. There's, you're talking about the operations and how an organization manages itself. But interestingly, these stories did start getting re re reported when I think it all came back to the Russian doping scandal and people saying, OK, well, around 2016, it was it was after the uh, McLaren report came out, which um, for those that uh, were not familiar, came off the back of some really serious um, stories in The New York Times about state sponsored doping in Russia. And that's what led to the, the movie Icarus, um, which, of course, won an Oscar and, and put that oh. story even more into the mainstream than WADA had, had made it. And essentially off the back of that McLaren report, which is the investigation WADA carried carried out, um, you know, WADA then called for a, a sanction of the Russian Olympic Committee at the Rio Games um, and the IOC declined that. So that brought to light actually the governance issues and those drier topics, which media felt um, were perhaps holding back 
the you know the the ability of sport to tackle doping mm. um and so that led to a lot of you know political news stories around WADA and the IOC's relationship and and conflicts of interest and why why the global authority on doping couldn't make the sanction itself and didn't have the power to so it was a messy situation but actually it did bring those things into light and it did shine a light on okay how can we ensure these bodies are better structured and governed with independence which in itself is open to interpretation how you define that um is how how they're how they're structured for the good of the athletes and for the good of sport so th- those stories did start coming into light amongst the sports news journalists um but of course when they're not when they're not under the microscope that hopefully means that they're they're being run better I know, absolutely, absolutely. Now let's uh, swiftly move along a bit here because I, I do want to touch quickly on the Commonwealth Games and, and then Sports Radar the stops you had there before we then mm-hmm. you know finally reach Pedal 22 here. Um, yeah. So again, Commonwealth Games, this is the Gold Coast Games. Uh, I think you were based out of London, which is obviously the, the Federation's head office, um, and then spent some amount of time, I guess, uh, in Australia for the game itself. Uh, any, any interesting stories? stories on that yeah commonwealth games federation what a, you know what a great opportunity that was that was um i went in as their first director of communications and public affairs they were headquartered in london um you know really interesting world the commonwealth games it faces a lot of um questions and accusations of how relevant it is today given that the commonwealth history and the fact that the games have you know many eyes declined in importance as the olympics have grown in importance mm-hmm. so it does still face questions over its relevance um i found it a fascinating product because they'd brought in this new sort of brand for the commonwealth games which was all about trying to do things the olympics weren't doing so it was very equality focused so you'd have um they're trying to have you know set targets to make sure there are the right number of um male referees in traditional female sports like netball and vice versa more female referees in more right. traditionally male sports like rugby so they had real targets to show that equality was moving right through the commonwealth sport movement nice. they would have a very strong um uh for the gold coast games um program to highlight um aboriginal indigenous rights so they would procure companies that were um, employing aboriginal people for example um there'd be a big focus on yeah like i said gender equality the 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 um the commonwealth games able-bodied competitions and the and the paralympic competitions were totally integrated so you'd have one swimming race um able-bodied and nearly have the next race which was para swimming oh wow and so not two separate events it's all happening at the same time yeah and that was to me that was a great way of sending a message of we don't need to separate these things and make a thing out of paralympics versus olympic sport um let's you know ultimately people want to see you know the best performing athletes they don't want to um you know make those distinctions really so so if it's all in the same event and all in the same session in the evening that just sends a statement that you know everyone everyone is equal in that sense and i think that was just a clever way of doing it so commonwealth games i I really like that do i have to admit i did not realize that i guess i didn't catch as much of the games um that that was done that is really cool i really yeah that is something nice to highlight and uh, hopefully other sports can do the same uh that's really cool yeah i think and it has you know more and more people for this games the Birmingham games have picked up on that and i think it's a nice differentiator the commonwealth games has from the olympics so look it it was doing good things i think it's still got a a job to do to convince people it has a a strong future but it needs to it needs to create this yeah clear blue water between the olympics and itself it's never going to be 
of the stature of the Olympics. So it needs to do things well in, in different ways. Um, but it was a fascinating role. And, uh, you know, it, it involved um, working with many different stakeholders. You know, one, I would describe the Commonwealth Games Federation as, you know, uh, rich in, in, um, in associations. Uh, so it had, you know, its patron was, um, it was uh, the royal, royal household, the UK royal family. Right. Um, it had connections with the Commonwealth governments, Commonwealth Games associations. It had excellent kind of reach and associations what it didn't it wasn't rich um financially so we're not talking about an international olympic committee um funded organization we're talking about a small group of staff that historically had had good you know good connections with with influential bodies and and um and people and so you know one minute i would be in a meeting in Buckingham Palace, talking about the games and 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 <laughs> in cool. briefing room there, and the next minute I'd be flying out to Gold Coast doing a site visit for um for the opening ceremony, and then writing the opening ceremony speech for the president. So mm-hmm. it was a wide ranging role, um, complicated given the constructs of the Commonwealth with big countries like Canada, Australia, and small island states. Yeah. So you've got a melting pot of countries. You've got a David and Goliath type vibe. Um, but that made it fun and, and fascinating for me. And I, you know, we Australia was a great market to have it because it's, it, you know, it's a country that loves its sport. Yeah. So it was a good experience, and uh, you know, it 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 sold tickets well and it um, was popular on the ground. Um, and yeah, it was a great uh, great period of time. Yeah, I can imagine. It sounds like it. I mean, I, we had, we had the Commonwealth Games in Malaysia in 1998, which was the starting point of when we, as an a TSA, my agency started, and we did our first. That was basically our, some of our first business was uh, related to the event. So, even though I'm not from the Commonwealth Games, uh, from the Commonwealth, uh, I yeah. do know the games well, and uh, or had someone have been following it, obviously, uh, because yeah. of it. So, uh, yeah, no, that's very cool. Now. Let's move. I, I quickly want to highlight this this uh, sort of stop you had here for a bit more than a year with Sports Radar because everyone knows Spates. Well, not everyone. Many people will know Sports Radar, especially recently. You know, going listing. Um, you know, huge valuation and it's clearly an amazing company. What it does uh, in the data side of it, etc. Dealing with the betting world. But you were the head of anti-doping services in Europe. Um, and again, I, ne- I doubt many people know what Sports Radar actually does in the space. I'd love you to just quickly explain that a bit, your role, and of course, uh, the role of Sports Radar in this particular space. Absolutely. Well, yeah, a lot of people scratch their heads when they hear that because <laughs> they think they know Sport Radar. And uh, yeah, I had no idea. So you're not you're not alone. But I've I've been consulting, um, yeah, with my own sports communications consultancy for, for several years since the Commonwealth Games, and then. One of one of the clients I worked with was Sport Radar, and I got to know them and what they were doing on the anti-doping side of things. I, and given my background and knowledge of that world, they um, presented an opportunity as one of their team was moving. They did have the anti-doping department in place, although it was early days, and that person was moving on to a role in the States. So they, they essentially said to me, look, we've got an opportunity here. Would you be interested in heading up our anti-doping services division for, for Europe? And I thought, you know what? This is this is one of those moments where you can kind of pick the pick the road you go down. Um, and again, someone who loves a challenge. This was the first time in my career really to be outside of communications. It was more of a business development role. It was more focused on sales than I would have liked. So that was uh, that was the reason um, I, I was there only for just over a year. But it's really it was. You know, you look at Sport Radar and their data organization, 
uh, involved in um, yeah the betting world. They're involved in um, anti-corruption and using their intelligence and data to detect um, you know I guess bad bad performance in the betting markets to yes. detect corruption. These kind of things. So they had access to all this sports data. And and there was an opportunity really to do a couple of things. And there were a couple of products we were we were pushing out there. One was intelligence and investigation services. So a team of people who would use open source techniques, uh, publicly available information to detect doping trends, to look at what substances are being pushed on the black market, uh, to look at you know the companies and the people, the sort of nefarious goings on um, behind doping substances being you know sold to athletes and trying to really clamp down on those networks right. um, and providing that information to those that had the power to do something about it so providing that information to the sports federations and the anti-doping bodies mm. in order because they might not have the capability in-house uh, and then they can decide from that information okay we need to test this athlete or test that athlete and um, we do this with our strategy so essentially one of those products was intelligence investigations to to feed so um, there's some dark net stuff here is it uh, like digging around where where the, the where people normally can't see things is it exactly well that was i wasn't personally one of those investigators but one of the, the team members i was working with absolutely their role was to go and find that information and and use their technical yeah. capabilities to find you know publicly available information but but only publicly available if you know where to look where so. to look for this uh, well that was a that was a service, and then there was something something else we provided, which was a new service um, called a remote testing system, and that was essentially to use, um, you know, during COVID, as you might imagine, as a lot of things shut down, doping testing was one of those things because you couldn't send testers face to face around the world, so people trialed different things as innovations, and one of those was Sport Radar's remote testing system, okay, which was to essentially to test athletes over a you know a Zoom platform like we're speaking on today, mm. and. Um, and the system would be, you know, essentially provided to sports federations. And how it would work is, ahead of a sports season, there would be a set pool of elite athletes who know they're part of the what we call the registered testing pool. So they would be sent kits to their residential home address ahead of the season, knowing that they could be tested, but not knowing when. And um, Sport Radar would have the platform available. And the athletes would have an app on their phone, uh, which is linked, and they would get pinged when they're when they're being asked to test. And that would be during a time when they've registered that they're going to be at their at their house. And essentially, then a video call test takes place um, over the line um, uh, with, with the testing kit that the athlete has. Now, the question that comes most from that is, oh, hang on a minute, do you have to film the <laughs> the testing procedure? So a lot of it is on film, but the, obviously the, the private part of giving a urine sample, for example, is not. That's off camera. Right. Um, but there's very you know, rigorous checks done by the tester on the, on the line to check there's no equipment they're going to use to cheat the test with, et cetera. So it's, it, it crosses all the, um, you know, all the, all the, the le ticks all the legal boxes without crossing the threshold of um, you know, invasion of privacy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting. Those tests were then reported into a, a virtual system. So that was something else that was being pushed. The challenge with that is that that wasn't a system that was yet fully recognized by, by WADA. So you know, to, to, to get that really pushed out far and wide, we had to focus on the private sports organizations who weren't part of the WADA system, um, who were, you know, had the freedom to try that. Uh, until the until the global rules are, are maybe changed one day. So it was a it, you know it was a fascinating fascinating period of time. Um, I yeah, think what got me space. 
communications and and everything that got me this far in my career. So I learned a lot. No no kind of um, no regrets about taking that on. Um, but you know my passion is in communications, and that's what brought me back to. That's where to you work. know exactly. So let's talk about Paddle Twenty Two. Uh, first of all, I guess the name Twenty Two comes from the year two thousand twenty two when you started. Uh, is sort of basic similar assumption, or where what's the number? Yeah, that's right. So two things. One is, yes, launching in 2022. And, and the other is it's generally 99% of the time, it's 2v2 paddles. So that was the, the genesis of the yes, game. Yes, okay. Now let's, you know, that's before we, uh, you know, go into what you're doing, because clearly everyone by now has worked out um, probably what it is, but I, I want to go more a bit more deeper. But let's talk first a bit more about what is paddle. Because I almost literally always want to call it paddle tennis, but that's obviously incorrect. Uh, it is just called paddle. And also, if for anyone listening in the US, it's not paddle spelt with two Ds because there is another sport in the United States or in Canada, I think, uh, where they play. And that is, I think that is more of a tennis, tennis version, uh, which is called paddle tennis there. Um, so we're talking paddle, which comes, which is now, as a, it's, it's obviously a, a big sport or a growing sport in, in Europe. Um, I think originally it comes out of Mexico from at least what I read um, up. So yeah. it was sort of founded in the 1960s there. Uh, and it is definitely uh, very prominent in, let's call it the Latin American territory. Right, Spain, I think, is the leading territory, and then certain other groups around countries around the world, and even in the UK now, right, it's become officially uh, recognized under the tennis association right, and the LTA. So, tell us a yeah. bit about it. You know, what is it? What what got you excited over it? But also, you know, a little more of you know what paddle is all about in your views. Yeah, well, I started playing. Uh, I actually played in Dubai a couple of years ago, and um, my my sister who lives out there said, "Okay, you used to play a lot of tennis and squash. I've got the perfect sport for you. It's called paddle." And uh, the rest is history there. So I've then been playing a little bit back in the UK, although the courts are not yet built at the uh, at the extent we'd like. Um, but I then this year started getting very interested in the paddle industry and and the kind of slight wild west situation we're seeing with many in the private sector starting up panel organizations and court developing courts and really just looking at where this is all going to land and there's multiple things going on at the international level with rival tours um federations a lot of politics there um politics i guess at the national level do tennis federations take over paddle as well is it a form of paddle or is it is it a form of tennis or is it not um, ask two different people and they give you two, two different answers. Right. So there's a lot going on and then there's a lot going on at the grassroots level of, um, you know, getting courts built. Explain first before up. anyone who's never seen a pedal uh, match, uh, describe how it looks, the the actual facilities for which you need to play pedal. Yeah, well, uh, it's about um, it's about the size of a, I think you can maybe fit two, two and a half paddle courts on a tennis court, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it's generally played outdoors, although depending on the climate, maybe indoors, there's quite a bit of indoors in the UK for obvious reasons. Um, and yeah, essentially it is a, a mini tennis court. So it's got the net, it's got the boxes um, as the tennis layout, but it's played within uh, four glass walls. Right. Um, so there's a squash eight, element to it. Yes, there's a squash element. So it is very much a, a cross between squash and tennis. So you can play the ball. Um, you score like tennis. Uh, you serve underarm rather than the usual tennis serve. Right. Uh, you play as doubles 99% of the time. 
Uh, but you can play it off the walls. So um, I won't go into the details of the rules, but you can play it off certain rule, uh, walls. There's also a cage material, and that's where it can, you play it off the cage and it can bounce in an unusual position. So that's a good um, tactic. Um, so it's a, it's a really clever game in many ways. And the biggest um, advantage it has, I think, is it's a lot easier for beginners or intermediate people to, to, to step onto the court and pick it up and get to a, a decent level quickly. Right. Unlike tennis, where it can quickly become apparent you've got your opponents much better than you or worse than you. So mm. it has that big asset of being able to, it's, it's the great equalizer in many ways. You can play doubles and it doesn't matter if you're not the same level because it would seem like you're not far off. Right. Um, and that, and that's, that's, a, that's a big thing as well, right? That it is a bit similar to pickleball. It is really heavily focused on the double component, less the single, which if you think in tennis, you know, the biggest stars yeah. are all single players, not necessarily the double players, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, so here it's the other way around. It is much more a, you know, I guess a team sport in that sense. The racket is a is a solid racket, right? And the ball is, what I read, is yeah. at least, it's slightly smaller than a tennis ball and a little less pressure in it exactly. So it, uh, in that sense, is a little slower. But because of the walls and all the other stuff, and I, what are the, some of the videos I've seen, it, it looks amazing. Some of the, you know, the skill set of how people play this, even Larry jumping outside of the court to bring the ball back yeah. in, right? I mean, this is sort of the highlights you know, on YouTube, uh, if anyone Googles it, uh, which when you watch it, going, okay, this is cool, right? And, and it can be very exciting. That's And also, I'm assuming that's part of what, what, you, what excited you about it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it really is. It's um, like you say, those rackets or bats, they're called both uh, much smaller and they're, they're solid um, rather than strings for the for the yeah. surface playing area. Right. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating game and it's very cat and mouse. So you might think, you know, like in squash where you're hitting it very hard, um, you might think, you know, you're you're trying to who's hitting it the hardest, etc. But it's much more nuanced than that. You know, the, the rallies tend to go fast, slow in between. It's very... Like I say, cat and mouse, it's very a, a clever game in many ways. Um, but the skill set needed, yeah, I think you can pick it up a lot quicker or hit the ball a lot quicker than you can in tennis. So that's the big advantage. Now, like you say, um, whilst I certainly can't do it, um, there's definitely a big, um, you, you watch the YouTube videos, you see people running out of the court when it bounces over the top and still hitting it back in the court. And it's fascinating. So it has a real sort of... Um, how would I describe it? A bit of a maverick rogue element to it. It's not traditional and classic like we know tennis. It's 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 quite dynamic, fun, edgy. It has a sort of urban look to it. Um, you're in close proximity to your, the other players, so it's more intimate. There's more humor and banter, I think, than you can have in other sports. Um, and it, it's super sociable and very inclusive in that way, in all those ways, but in, in the way you can get to a good level quickly. So I think it's... Um, this isn't a fad. I think the stats show it is growing and growing. I think the key is how sustainable it becomes from the strategies that different countries put in place. So if you look at Sweden, you know, they've, they've gone hard and fast with the build of courts over COVID, funnily enough. Mm. Um, and um, and then a lot, a lot of courts are now starting to close. So perhaps that's a, a model to not replicate if you're a new country looking to um, to build them in a sustainable way. Um, so there's lessons to be learned. There's a lot of interest. And I think different parts of the world, including Asia, are going to be jumping on this soon. Um, be interesting to see what America does with, given that pickleball is all the talk there right now. But that's that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, and we'll get there in a minute. Uh, I want to do a little bit of comparison. But um, now, so in the world of paddle, is there a FIFA uh, or that has not really been established who is the powers in it or... 
There's a yeah. There's currently a, there's the International Paddle Federation, a small organisation. Um, with yeah, small team which has the governance of paddle internationally and is responsible for the the sporting elements, so the rules and the organising the tournaments and the um, you know all the logistics that go of putting on a professional tournament for the players. Uh, so that's called the International Paddle Federation or, or FIP for short. Mm-hmm. And the uh, now. As you say, globally it is it is a bit of spread around the world, uh, sort of around the world, and I guess countries like Spain, I guess, would have a, probably a league and 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 more sophisticated structures than than others. Um, yeah. Where do you see your opportunity now with with your agency, right? What what is it when you looked at um, setting up a you know a communication agency, not in a general sense, but very specific now for this one sport here? Uh, what is it what you saw? Uh, just yeah, uh, I saw. I saw an opportunity to combine two things, my my experience and background in communications with a newfound passion and knowledge of paddle. And I thought the time was very much now. Um, the sport is growing by, you know, and changing by the day. We're hearing of new ventures the whole time. And I saw an opportunity because um, in the English-speaking world, and or I should say in the non-Spanish-speaking world, paddle is essentially a new startup sport, albeit right. at different levels depending on which country you're from now or different speeds but in spain and argentina and much of latin america it's it's very established it's been around 30 40 50 years if you take right. uh, when it was first invented. so it's moving at two speeds and i think that's the fascinating thing about this paddle story is um you know in many ways those traditional paddle countries will think what took the rest of you so long right <laughs> um but um, but we're, we are catching on to it now, and it, it's it's moving fast. And my motivation was, I think deep down, it's to grow the sport of paddle. I'm passionate about it. I see an opportunity in in different parts of the world. It's very you know global globally minded is what I'm doing. It's not I'm based in the UK, but it's very much I'm focused on the emerging territories. So the Middle East is is growing with paddle very fast. Um, Australia, I think, will be the next wave. I think Asia will start to build courts. You know, fast and furious pretty soon. Um, and then you've got, you know, what happens in the Americas. I think that's an interesting um, one to watch as well. So I'm, I'm kind of motivated by the growth of paddle. As for what um, I do and what I, who I want to work with, you know, there's multiple different ways. So it could be working with clubs uh, and managing their local PR to help them get uh, membership numbers. Could be working with tournaments who are staging, um, who, are, who are staging World Paddle Tour or Premier Paddle tournaments and need help with the promotions for ticket sales. Uh, it could be working with federations to help them, you know, reputationally and from a stakeholder point of view. Uh, it could be working with the players. And, and actually, this is an interesting point. So in paddle, um, whilst in many sports, which are much more established, um, the top athletes will have multiple PR people and, and, and a support team. In paddle, they don't have that. But what they mm. do have is a great kind of sense of duty to growing their sport by themselves. So they are very much using this opportunity to, um, you know, I guess, build their own profiles on social media, on TikTok, on Instagram, um, really telling their stories through their own homework, in a sense, because because it's at that stage. Um, so they are very much growing the sport through social media. And I think that's a fascinating way of telling the paddle stories that other sports don't do so much. So, you know, working with players or it could be working with um, sponsors and brands that want to tell their story for the reasons for their investments in sports. Um, so there's multiple different sectors within Paddle that I think, you know, need promotions, need to be put on the map. Um, and I see Panel 22 as a real opportunity to, yeah, essentially become the, the number one, you know, commun- communications consultancy uh, worldwide for Paddle. Um, and, you know, I feel there's a gap in the market there and I feel there's a, 
almost a responsibility to help tell the stories of Paddle um, that aren't being told um, and, and really help shine a light on the positive aspects of the sport. Uh, well, that's cool. Well, and hopefully what we're doing here will help uh, help kickstart a little bit of this. Um, you know, it's exciting. And, and of course, I wish you best of luck with it. Um, let's talk a little bit uh, and, and do some little bit sort of just some basic comparison right uh between pickleball and paddle because uh i've had funny enough a couple of interesting conversations over the last months here with people in the united states on pickleball uh and they're using similar terminology you know one of the fastest growing record sports in the world um you know it's taken over this and that and god knows what um and of course then you you know like typical american sports uh Uh, ecosystem it, it is they make things big quick right uh, and they build the stories around it all of a sudden you hear lebron james invested in a in a pickleball team um i think there was one or two other um nba players uh, now that was either yesterday or the day before i think Budweiser came in now and will spon not sponsor it they will have their own team uh, almost yeah. you know whatever i guess follow the the red bull um formula right to not just being a sponsor but you know coming in and with it with your own team etc so um yeah. clearly pickleball in the us is 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 taken on and it's getting big headlines again you know i've saw it in new york times etc you feel pedal is similar uh but in a more european way which is not always maybe a little more understated and not as loud and flashy in your face as what we see in the us or where how would you compare the two well interesting actually um yeah it's fascinating that pickleball is is kind of garnering all the headlines right now in the states and yet Paddle's doing the same in in the rest of the world in inverted commas, not in every country, but in in a lot of a lot of territories. So that makes an interesting story in itself. Now, I think I've certainly noticed of late that yeah, the, the positive PR and the momentum they're building over there with the Major League Pickleball yes. uh, and the franchise model of sport they have there. I'm a big fan of that system. I think it's good. It's enterprising. It's forward thinking, uh, and it gives good PR marketing opportunities. You know, they've had Tom Brady uh, become involved in one of the teams. Yeah, correct. Uh, LeBron James, uh, Kim Kleister's former tennis player. So it's a good way of a kind of drip drip effect of showing the m momentum and the growth by having these celebrity figures getting involved and that will do wonders for the the number of people taking part in the sport across the states and Canada I've no doubt. Yeah. So do you think Paddle can mimic some of that? I mean could you recreate that? I know there's um I know there's in the works there's a there's a, a major league um yeah pro paddle pro paddle league in the states um under, you know going to be underway in 2023 that won't be necessarily at the same stature as pickleball yet but they are looking at those models um and that that's coming they, they have publicized it but that will that will be coming down the line i think the key with the states is it's awareness you know people jump onto a a trend and they and they get excited about something new and exciting um and paddle just needs that awareness i think once it's known to the american population i'll be very surprised if a lot of people don't move over to paddle or play both because because i think there's more to it if, it, if i'm honest i think pickleball clearly clearly has a hook but i think paddle There's more um, there's more tactics to it. There's more more you can grasp um, in terms of getting better at the it's game. It's definitely the faster game between the two. Uh, I've watched a bit of pickle, and I have to admit, I'm a tennis. I come from the tennis world. I played tennis. I grew up playing tennis, and and probably played every record sport there is, uh, or have at least tried it. Um, 
hey, watching pickleball, I, I don't know. I didn't quite get it, I have to admit. Um, but when I watch yeah. paddle, I get it. I, and I get excited over the action I see there. So interesting, yeah. to, you know, maybe different, just different audiences. Yeah, maybe different audiences. I mean, for what it's worth, my prediction is that paddle will, there will be a paddle wave in the States. I think it will, I think pickleball's wave is very much coming there now, but I think paddle will follow. Um, as for which gains supremacy, uh, who knows? Or maybe they can coexist equally alongside each other and they're, you know, maybe they're for different demographics or different skill sets. Let's yeah. let's see. But I think, you know, I don't think America has forgotten paddle. I think it just doesn't know it yet. Um, and, but there are courts appearing. I know there's, um, you know, courts in New York. I know there's going to be courts in New, um, New England and, 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 and that will spread to other states as well. So yeah. I think it's a case of watch this space um, in America with with paddle um and as for pickleball clearly that's on the rise and i look it's good for racket sports in general it's good it's good for society and it's good for health as well yeah i mean you know when i looked at it and doing my homework on it and, and the conversation I had it it's clear that it's it, yeah it's a let's call it a short form of tennis right and not short form because the 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 courts are smaller right it is uh, different configurations and you know there is if you know a bit about tennis you can kind of you know get your head around what they're doing in in both of those sports um and i think that's interesting right uh, i think sports always needs that and you know how long would it last is it really going to become a major sport i think i at least i read the the pickleball uh fraternity wants to become an olympic sport i'm sure paddle has the same dream um whether yeah. that fits under the umbrella of tennis which of course is already an olympic sport and therefore it slots in there or whether you know you've tried to do it on your own i mean god knows yeah. it's, it's these are long ways and i'm sure it'll be a while before we're going to see it there but uh, either one of those yeah. Um, but it's all, yeah, it's an exciting time and it's of course growing and it's expanding, um, you know, in the U S already a few million dollar worth uh, of price money on, on these tournaments. So what, what's the sort of price pool in, in, in paddle just to give a sense? Oh, well, that is something beyond my pay grade. I'm afraid in terms of the current, um, current tournament prize money. Uh, but what I, what I can say is that it's, it's growing because what you've got at the international level is. You've got the the World Paddle Tour, which has, you know, until recently been the only show in town. That's been the one where all the top players play, and that's right. uh, owned run by Estrella Beer. Uh, and then you've got a new company that came on board, um, Qatar Sports Investments, uh, which aligned with the International Paddle Federation to set up a, you know, what you might call a rival tour uh, yeah. called Premier Paddle. And that was the first year of that this year. Now they are, unsurprisingly, with the funding, they're providing bigger purses of, of money to, to players. And there's currently a, you know, a very, what I would say, a bit of a messy situation going on with both tours vying for supremacy. There's a legal case ongoing, I think, at the European Commission. Um, it, you know, which way the players go, who knows? Will it be the biggest prize money? Will it be the better product and prize money? And, you know, both are kind of vying for the players' attention. As for what happens two or three years down the line when it settles, who knows which mm. which tour becomes the one but um you know i whilst i can't give you a figure of uh, what the prize money is for each of those tours right now i know that the situation will settle at some point but it's very much up in the air yeah. i think um one other thing i'd like to say you touched on it earlier is it is an interesting topic is you know when 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 will paddle get its place at the olympics does it have the credibility to do so absolutely i think it does uh, my view is perhaps you know 2028 la might be too early uh, but you know, certainly 2032 Australia. What a what a great presentation that would be to the world of of paddle. And I think, 
It's an interesting one, the, the tennis or paddle tennis. You know, it, I think the direction of travel is is very much paddle is its own sport. It is not a, a form of tennis. It is another racket sport, just like a squash um, is or, or just like a badminton is. And I think that is more and more people are moving to that point of view that, look, this doesn't need to be the sister sport to tennis. Yes, tennis players will move into paddle. Um, but perhaps it happens the other way. Who knows? Maybe paddle people start playing tennis. You know, there's no there's no um, textbook um, way to get into paddle. And I think it needs its own identity. It needs its own clear space uh, away from tennis. And um, the, the two sports can coexist in harmony, in my, in my view. They don't need to be seen as a threat, um, but they are different sports. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I mean, you know, we all, many of us know how, uh, how how hard squash has been trying to get into the Olympics uh, and unfortunately has been failing so far. Uh, we've been involved with them over many years and we were sort of on, as an agency supporting some of that. Um, and unfortunately, it never happened. Um, and I've seen other sports slipping into the Olympics exactly on the back of an existing sport. Um, so therefore, coming that way isn't necessarily a bad thing because doing it on your own merit, um, as, we, as many sports have seen, is, is not as easy. So we'll all watch this and see how it unfolds. And and the, the, the part about being, you know, that they have multiple groups and rivalries, uh, similar that happens in pickleball in the U.S. as well. Um, you know, there are different uh, stakeholders who are setting up different parts of the ecosystem and um, and that is all early days of how it's flashing itself out uh, who will be there uh, and it's interesting you mentioned that Qatar is behind one of them I guess similar to how Saudi is behind the uh, the golf tour there so all right again yeah. some uh, you know interesting movements there out of the Middle East uh, for for in a, in a new sport here well yeah. look uh, ben that was uh i enjoyed this this was fun uh, a learning a bit about um the world of pr and and communication in our industry and of course your your stops around there from the wadas to uh the sports radars um and of course uh your own agency here so uh, uh you know i i i uh, when we talked last time, I sort of said, you know, that I felt you had a bit of a nomad style approach to uh, being in sports. And I know you didn't necessarily like that. Uh, and, and it's fine. Um, but it's, you know, and I meant it more how it was interesting how you moved around the world. Right. And you worked in, you know, from, you know, in Australia to Canada to Dubai, et cetera. And, uh, and even, you know, take Formula One experience there. I'm sure, you know, God knows how many stops that was. Um, so I think it was, you know, it's just a great way to, to see the world. And that's more my message for the kids out there, um, you know, who are looking at, you know, opportunities in the world of sports. It's not about you have to be stuck in one location and work at whatever that your local football club, so to speak, right? Um, there are these opportunities anywhere in the world. And your Dubai example, what you mentioned in 2008 is a great example of, you know, get out there, right? Uh, some parts of the world are always striving while others are maybe uh, struggling. So uh, yeah. I think that's more my point. Absolutely. No, and I, I absolutely agree. I think it is. Um, there's there, there has to be a mentality there of um, not just not risk taking, but I think um, that sort of go getting attitude. And that doesn't come from necessarily having the financial means to do so. It comes from, I think, a mindset of um, do I want to try this and hope it's successful? But there's always a chance it, it might not turn out as I wish, but I better better to have experienced and uh, and found out than than to sit back and think oh i'll do that when the time is right because when is when is the time right is, is kind of the question i come back to yeah. and i think 
So it is a mindset and a lot of people out there have it and I encourage them to, if they have it um, or if they don't, to really, really try and take those opportunities and look for them because we're very, you know, we have more information in the world today than we've ever had. Um, we're more connected, yet at the same time, we're often in our silos and our bubbles. And I think um, it's very easy to forget that whilst we might be struggling in one, you know, where we live in one country and, and thinking that is how it is everywhere, there's always an opportunity out there um, if you go knocking on a door or if you just, you know, try and think laterally about ways you can help others or industries you can get into um, to to make opportunities happen. So I think there's uh, what I would say is seek opportunities. Um, I would say, you know, it's a small industry sport. So be kind to people along the way. Um, go the extra mile to help. Um, and I think, yeah, work work hard is key. Um, no job too big or too small is is what I've learned, no matter how far you get in your career, you always got to be ready to do the more menial tasks. And I think that's the sign of a good, good professional is they, uh, they're not too proud to take on important work and, and what they consider work that's beneath them. I think it's all, it's all important. And we've all been through the hard yards to get, get to where we have. So, um, yeah, I think attitude and, um, I would say to anyone grasp the opportunities and work hard and, uh, Never think the door's completely closed. Always, um, there's always new opportunities and new chapters around the corner. Um, so, yeah, in a, in a sense, go for it. Definitely. Yeah, and I can identify with that. I mean, I've spent my entire career not in my home country uh, when I left there 32 years ago and for the last 28 years here in Asia. So, uh, yeah, it's been exciting. Um, and, you know, hopefully more folks around the world will have that opportunity uh, and experience that too and, and mit, maybe get inspired by the stories we shared here today. So, Ben, thanks for your time and have a great day there in Oxford. Uh, great, Marcus. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed the chat. We'll talk soon. Cheers. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.